it wasn't until I met Quincy Jones that he sort of just released me from that prison and helped me see that your mistakes, in some ways, are your greatest gift. But it's only if you cherish them and it's only if you treat them as your best friends can you learn from them. And only then can you grow. Welcome to another episode of the Not Almost There podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. On today's episode, I have a very special guest, Alex Benayan, who wrote this book, The Third Door. Listen, I'm a slow reader, but I picked this book up and read it cover to cover in two sittings. So call it like four hours because it's that good. It's about an 18-year-old Alex who is stuck. He's in college. He's on his bed in his dorm room, staring at the ceiling. And he's like, what am I going to do with my life? I don't want to be here. The problem is... His parents have a dream. Their one dream is they want to make sure Alex finishes college and becomes a doctor. That's their mission. So he's conflicted. So he goes to the library and he wants to do research on how people become successful. So he starts looking at biographies like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. But then he realizes that's a bit overwhelming. So he starts to try and look for like a collection, like a summary, like one book with all these biographies in it are secrets that are summarized so he can get something out of it. But he realizes quickly that that book doesn't exist, at least a book for his generation that appeals to him. So he decides at that moment that that's going to be his purpose in life and he's going to go find some of the most successful people, interview them and write a book about the lessons that he learned. But what he didn't realize is how hard that was going to be how hard it was going to be to interview Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg and Lady Gaga and all of these people. The second thing, which was kind of a a big blocker right up front, he didn't have any money. So he figured out how to hack his way on the Price is Right game show. And when I say hack, he figured how to get on it. He gets on it, ends up winning a sailboat and selling the sailboat to fund this mission. This book is about that story. So not only do you have all of these great lessons from Alex in here and how he overcame all this adversity, how he even got to someone like Bill Gates, but it's about persistence and how he just kept going at it and going at it and going at it. And sometimes it would take him six months to a year just to even get through the front door to get an opportunity to meet someone that knew Bill Gates, like an assistant or chief of staff. And it's also about lessons that were learned once he did interview them. So everyone that is listening to this podcast and that's about to listen to this interview will get something out of it because there are so many nuggets in here. It is amazing. That all being said, before I get to the episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Not Almost There. Like it, leave a comment, share it with your friends. It would mean a ton to me. I really hope you enjoy this episode and I'm looking forward to your feedback after. Alex, welcome to the Not Almost There podcast. Thank you very much, Joe. 
I read your book, The Third Door, and I couldn't put it down. I think I was telling you off camera that I read this in, <laughs> in two days, and it was incredible. It's one of these books that makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you think a lot about your life, and, and it's super captivating. Like all these stories and adventures and everything you're going through, I, I can't recommend it enough. One of the one of the the pinnacles of the book is a Quincy Jones quote, hmm. or what what you thought of when you were talking to him. I think it turned into a quote from you, but I, but I don't want to get to that now. What I want to get to now is the people that you met along the way. One of those people inspired me in a huge way when I created my company, and that was Tony hmm. Shea of Zappos and delivering happiness. And obviously, Tony recently passed away. Mm-hmm which is extremely sad, you got to follow Tony Shea around. And this is one of your, by the way, one of your many, many unbelievable stories. You got to follow him around and shadow him for two days as, you know, when he was going to meetings as a CEO and uh, you got to see how he interacted with people, but you didn't describe that in the book. So I'd love to start there. I... I've of course been thinking about it a lot too. Um, Tony's death was really hard to process. Um, I, I share what you feel, which is he's uh, a hero to me in many ways. And yeah, when I was 18, I read his book for the first time. And, you know, you know the story. I was just on my bed going through a crisis. You know, I was feeling depressed because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. My parents were yelling at me. And, you know, it was this whole, you know, crisis. And I saw this book called Delivering Happiness, um, which I didn't even buy. I just got for free at an event. And I was like, well, I could use some happiness. I opened it up. And I that was one of an, that was an experience for me. I read his whole book in two days. And it was the first time that had ever happened to me before. And what that book did for me when I was 18 was, and I didn't know I was going to get this, it changed my idea of what was possible. And yeah, it's just one of those moments where, um, and you know the full story, you know, I had that book at the top of my bookshelf. It was, you know, my inspiration to keep going when I kept getting rejected once I set off on my journey and, you know, as fate would have it, about two years later, I was at a sleepover party in New Jersey and I wake up and there's my hero standing in the living room, Tony Shea. And of course I got nervous and I freaked out and I blew it and I didn't say anything and he just walked away and I just, you know, was kicking myself. Um, but then as you know, sure enough, two weeks later, you know, at that day I asked him, I told, he asked me what my biggest dream in life was. And I just thought I'd shoot my shot. And I said, my dream is to be Tony Schaefer the day. And he looked at me like I was a weirdo. And he's like, do you mean like shadow me? I was like, oh yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. <laughs> and he's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, and it was my birthday in a couple of weeks. So he said, oh, since it's your birthday, you can do it for two days. Um, and that's just the kind of person he was. Um, and I learned a lot in those meetings um, and something I wanted to put in the book, but it just didn't sort of fit in the flow was to write a list of like these 10 things I learned just from witnessing him. 
And I, I know what the number one most important thing was that I took away. You know, everyone would take away different things. I know what I took away. You know, here's this person who, you know, in his early 20s, sold a company to, for $250 million, uh, leaves that company, uh, walks away from millions of dollars from Microsoft, and then goes and starts a shoe online shoe company and, you know, sells it for a billion to Amazon. I just grew up with this belief that, you know, these big shot CEOs um, were just these larger than life personalities. You know, the kind of people who, you know, they always say when they walk into a room, you can feel their presence. Um, And, you know, when you watch TV, these are the people with the best comebacks and the smartest quips. And spending two days with Tony Shea was this masterclass in leadership that actually flipped everything upside down for me. You know, I would walk into a room with him and first of all, like, no entrance would not take up any of the air in the room. And I kid you not, it's going to sound like an exaggeration, but he, and maybe let's say we went to 10 meetings in one day. He would talk for five to 10% of the time. Um, but he wasn't zoned out. He would go into these meetings and just ask questions and listen and ask questions and listen and ask questions and listen. And you could just see him like almost like a computer taking in, you know, taking in this information and processing and processing and processing. Um, And my takeaway from that was, you know, real leadership has a lot less to do with telling people what to do and a lot more about hearing where, you know, when you're at a team of that size, you know, Zappos is a, you know, very big company at that point tony's job was actually to have his finger on the pulse take in data and make the right decision at the end of the day or at the start of the next day um and it was just pretty amazing to see someone who in theory could have had a very fair amount of ego and take up all the space and tell people what to do and tell people who's right and who's wrong and what's good and what's bad and it just blew that all away for me and, and this, you know, I have a dozen things, but that was the biggest one that I was like, yeah, humility. Yeah. And it's just, it's just smarter business too. It's just smarter business. I know someone came up to you and, and asked you, Hey, how did you get a chance to do that? And the, you asked Tony Shea that same question and he, he said that he would do that for other people. He would allow people to shadow him, but no one really asks him. And I thought that was very profound because oftentimes you don't get what you want until you ask for it. You you almost never get what you want until you ask <laughs> yeah. for it. Um, you know, there's this great uh, line from Harry Potter that says, you know, you know, at Hogwarts, you know, Dumbledore's famous line in Harry Potter's, you know, in Hogwarts, help is always there for those who ask, for those with the courage to ask. And I was like, hey, that's what Tony Shea said to me too. Um, and it's just this truth about life. You know, you you read the Price is Right story. You know, I didn't realize it, but I had to ask people for help. With uh, meeting Elliot Bisno, my mentor along the journey, I had to cold email and ask him. 
Uh, and I'm sure with you, when you were on that Ford assembly line or, you know, when you were applying for that job and you had to ask, you know, your buddy to use that ID and, you know, you had to ask for help. And, you know, if there's one thing I've learned about uh, achieving a dream, it's that the hard part actually isn't the act of, you know, running down the alley and banging on the door and figuring your way in. Uh, the hardest part for most people, myself included, is having the courage to admit that your current situation is not what you want to be in and having the courage to ask others for help. You were fighting a lot of uh, internal conflict, especially and external with your family. Still am, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to find out about that. You, know, in you, a, slay, a you bit. slay one dragon, fifteen pop up. So yeah, and and uh, I, I just I, I love the fact that your mom helped you book the plane tickets when you had to go to London. Mm. And for those people that have no idea and haven't read your book, maybe kind of set that up a little bit. But from what I got out of it is. Your your parents knew and, and your your grandmother how determined you were to go to London and take a chance mm-hmm. with Elliot and and see what happens. And they knew it was your dream. And despite you know their best wishes, she essentially helped you do it. So can you back that up and yeah. set that up a little bit? All right, this is the this is the background for the story for, you know, anyone who's listening who I'm meeting for the first time. Um, I had a dream when I was 18 years old. And my dream was to go out and interview the people I looked up to the most. And what I wanted to learn specifically wasn't how they, you know, I don't want to know how Bill Gates ran Microsoft. I wanted to know when he was in his dorm room trying to sell his first piece of software, how did he get that sale done when nobody knew his name and nobody cared who he was. I wanted to know how Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt. These are the things that sort of, and it doesn't matter what age you are. It's really about a stage. You can be 40, 50, 18. It doesn't matter because we all at some point in life. And for many of us, many times in life are going out to start something new. And when you start something new, You're always going to be at a place where people don't want to take your calls. People don't want to take your meetings. um, And, you know, it just feels like there's all these shut doors in front of your face. Um, You're pounded by rejections. And the question is, how do you find a way through? So I set off on this quest. And as you know, Joe, I hacked the prices right, used the money to fund the journey. And about a year into the journey to go and interview all these people who I looked up to, you know, the Bill Gateses and Lady Gaga's of the world. I was just, to my surprise, a year in, just completely drowning in rejections. Um, at that point, it was just... I This sounds like an exaggeration, but it was probably, this is just how I remember it, about 150 no's for every one yes. Uh, you know, if you're in sales, that's not good. Uh, that's not a good ratio. <laughs> you know, people aren't buying what you're selling. And, you know, I was an 18 year old trying to tell the most in demand, busy, uh, people, Hey, can I have an hour of your time, uh, for me to, you know, learn about how you did this? And they're like, uh, do you have a book deal? Oh no. Do you have any writing experience? No, no, no. Uh, why should we do this? I think it'll really help other kids. Like, you know, the pitch was just, uh, it was genuine, but it was just not, you know, 
there was no compelling factor for these people, you know, Bill Clinton to, you know, schedule it. Um, so about a year in, I'm just drowning in rejections. And I, at that point, you know, Bill Gates was my number one dream. And I finally, after a whole year, was able to get on the phone with Bill Gates, the chief of staff. And I get this call from Bill Gates, chief of staff, and he's like, so uh, I hear you want to interview Bill. And I'm like, yes, it's my biggest dream. And I start pitching him about the book. And he's like, look, I've heard all about it. I think it's great that you're trying to help your generation. Uh, The only problem is, you know, Bill doesn't really do interviews with like student newspapers. Maybe go, you know, get a publishing deal from Penguin or Random House and, you know, then we can consider it. Um. You know, I thought I was 95% of the way there, and I found out I was about 5% of the way there. So, you know, I'm completely dejected, wanting to pull the hair out of my head, and I, you know, I'm just sitting in my dorm room that night thinking, you know, how am I ever going to make this stuff happen? And that's when I remembered someone had told me about a company, a conference where they would get, you know, Bill Clinton and Richard Branson and... Uh, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and all these people on a cruise ship for a weekend. And I thought, well, if they can get these people on a cruise ship for a whole weekend, me getting them for an hour in a book must be much easier. Let me find out these people who are doing this cruise ship. And I look online and I'm assuming, you know, it must be this, you know, big shot CEO, you know, who has decades of experience. And I go online and I read this article about this company called Summit Series. And as I'm reading it, it says, you know, the founder of Summit Series, Mr. Elliot Bisno, serial entrepreneur, age 26. And I was like, what? And Joe, I remember like, you know, sitting back in my chair thinking like, it must be a typo. You know, my cousin's 26. You know, this is not possible. And I end up, you know, Googling this guy, Elliot Bisno. And it sort of was like this rabbit hole that sucked me down. And I remember just spending all day in my dorm room. Uh, you know, missing lunch, missing dinner, just reading everything I could about him on the internet. And by the end, I remember, and it's funny you bring up Tony Shea, because I remember closing my eyes at the end of the night, opening my journal and writing Dream Mentors at the top of my journal. And on the first line, I wrote Elliot Bisno, and on the second line, I wrote Tony Shea. And a couple weeks later, uh, in my procrastination one night at the library, which is normally when the best stuff happens, I decide to cold email Elliot Bisno using the Tim Ferriss cold email template from the book. And sure enough, Elliot says, yes, I'll meet you tomorrow. Um, And he said, are you free? And I looked at my calendar and I had an accounting final. So I told him, of course, I'm 100% free. And I, you know, showed up to the meeting. And what I thought would be a 15 minute meeting turned into a four hour meeting. And then that summer we ended up traveling the world together. And, you know, the moment you bring up about my mom is, you know, I have this immigrant family which came from Iran to America as refugees in 1979. And this is their worst nightmare. You know, their son, uh, who they have, you know, sacrificed everything for to have a safe life, become a doctor, you know, their idea of the American dream, get an education, make money, have a family, and just, like, don't die. I'm like meeting strangers on the internet trying to travel the world with them. And, you know, it's their worst nightmare. But um, as I think you brought up, one of the beautiful themes of this seven-year quest um, that I couldn't have anticipated. 
is the unconditional love of a mother to a child. And at times where I thought my mom might never speak to me again, were actually some of the moments that she showed up for me the most. That's amazing. The one subtle thing that I had picked up is along the way you've met a ton of mentors and we're going to dive through some of them. You've learned best practices of how to approach people and how to get people to respond, whether that be Tim's cold email or your friend Kevin. Um, there was a lot of people, Elliot, giving you advice, do this, do this, follow this, don't do this. But what I found is when you were faced with, hey, this is this just isn't working, mm-hmm. where you got the results that you were looking for was when you went into your heart. I was, it's as if you can read my mind. Cause in my mind, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, that was, that was it. One of the bigger moments is when you were able to secure your agent and you threw everything out that you learned and you, you said, screw it. I'm going to do it my way, the way I feel. And I think that changed the trajectory of this whole story. Cause that allowed you to open those gates to meet Bill Gates, no pun intended. It's something I think about quite often, which is, you know, you're a person who really loves personal development, just like I do. Um, And it's this interesting balance between, and and I do think it's a balance, it's a harmony, it's not one or the other, which is there is a time for studying what other, what's worked for other people. There is a time for experimenting. There is a time for optimizing. There is a time for trying to hack, you know, your productivity, the best practices, as you say. Um, but the miracles in life, and I'm sure you can, you know, reflect back on your journey, your career, the miracles very rarely come from you perfectly mastering a five-step technique you read on a blog. The miracles come from you looking within yourself, and it normally comes after a bunch of rejection, a lot of pain, (laughs) you looking within yourself and listening to that inner whisper. And whether you want to call that an act of grace, whether you want to call that your soul, whether you want to call that your heart, um, your personal destiny, your personal journey, your, you know, whatever you want to call it, we all know, and we've all felt it. And you can, we can probably count on our fingers the amount of times those moments have happened in life. It doesn't happen a hundred times, but we all know those moments where Everything just comes together. And it's not because you were up here in your head. It's because you finally, finally were either so desperate in such despair or uh, for some other reason, you finally dropped all the tools and you listened to that whisper. There's, there's again, many characters um, to change topics for a second. One of one of them who I never heard before is uh, Chi Lu. Mm, isn't he the, just the coolest? Oh my god! Reading the the Chi Time and yeah. uh, everything about him, I couldn't help but think that hustle is so understated in many ways in today's work environment. And that's not to say people yeah. aren't working really hard and they're going after it, but the way he optimized time and the 
the impact that I think he had on Microsoft, one of the biggest companies in the world, and how he helped you, how he gave the time to you, because he was able to optimize his time. You know, I was talking to InQ, who I know you know, last week, and a few other people, and it's not, and we were talking about like, there's not, it's not like you don't have time for things, it's how you prioritize your time. But Chi was one of the first guys that I read that methodically looked at how little he can sleep so he can be more efficient because that was the only way growing up in China that he could stand out is by putting more hours in because everyone has the same amount of hours when they wake up on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. What else did you learn from him that may not have been in the book? Ooh, that's a great question. If I could go back in time and rewrite that Chilu chapter, something, you know, it's it, it was the way it is because frankly, I had to write it the way I experienced it. Um, but that, you know, interview that I did with Chilu was probably, this is 2011, so nine years ago. So I've had nine years to really reflect on that experience with Chilu. This is what I'll tell you. Yes, I think in the beginning of his life, when he began to hack his time, um, he was probably motivated a lot by, you know, the pain of poverty, the desperation of trying to break through and live a better life. Um, but when I think back about the person who I was sitting across from, you know, the table with nine years ago when he was, you know, the president of Microsoft, yo, you, you don't get that kind of, uh, hard work at that stage in life from ambition. Cause, uh, he's made all the money, you know, you could use. He's, you know, he's the president of Microsoft. There's, he's reached that plat. He's reached that mountaintop. Um, for me, something that I wish I could uh, have explained more, and I think I can only, I only was able to see it now in hindsight, is that was someone who was working not from the fuel of ambition, but from the fuel of gratitude. And frankly, I never even under, I couldn't have understood that nine years ago in my life. I didn't even know that that was a, there was different kinds of fuel to fuel hard work. Uh, and I can see in my own life, sometimes I'm, fueled by ambition. Sometimes I'm fueled by fear. Sometimes I'm fueled by gratitude. Um, With Chi at that point in his life, he knew and had never forgotten where he came from. He knew that when he was a kid, there wasn't even enough money to, you know, they ate meat once a year. Um, the school that he went to had 300 kids per teacher. He knew where he came from. Um, and when I was sitting across from him, he had not forgotten. And, you know, I remember asking one of the things that didn't make it into the book. I asked him, you know, what do you do for fun? And he's like, oh my God, when I go to a movie theater with my daughter, it blows my mind. You know, this is a guy who's, he's the president of Microsoft, right? There's a lot of things that in theory he could be doing going on a yacht on a private jet. And he was so real. He's like, the fact that I can just stroll into a mall, pay 20 bucks without thinking about it, and watch it. This is someone who's still very much rooted and has so much presence into where he came from and knows there's still millions of people who are stuck in those circumstances. And 
he just has, you know, the right, uh, you know, you want to call the, you know, the first things are first for him. It's that gratitude. And I think anyone, you know, Joe, whether it's someone at your stage who sold companies or any kind of executive, any kind of person who's running a dealership, there's a point in your life where you actually have to switch the motivation, switch the fuel. Um, because what got you started when you were starting out um, is not going to be the fuel to keep you going in the long run. And I think that fuel of gratitude and fuel of knowing where you came from and fuel of love to help those who are still back where you were is one of the most powerful motivations possible. Yeah, he. it was uh, It was amazing to get to know him through your words. And I'm looking forward to researching him more and, and just knowing that he, he created what Yahoo search Yahoo shopping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, which I know Yahoo turned into to Bing essentially, um, and many other things. So he, yeah, the cloud computing division at Microsoft, which is yeah. now, like, the most important division. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's just a, and the fact, again, he's still just wearing sandals to work, some worn in jeans. I think he got from Costco, like, He's just the coolest. It's just, uh, it's hard to explain what it's like to sit in front of someone like that and go, oh, this is something very special here. Did he read your book when it came out? Do you know? Uh, I sent him a copy. We've like talked over email a few times. Uh, you know, I don't want to put someone on the spot like that and be like, what did yeah, you think? I was just, no, I was just curious um, if he commented on it. Uh, but he's, he actually is in China. He now works in China. He's, he moved back, um, and I believe he's head of Y Combinator China right now, working on startups in China. Okay. Um, I believe he's in Beijing, I think. So the theme with Chi Lu to me was finding an advantage, and that advantage was, like I had mentioned, I could experiment with my body, understand what sleep I need, be consistent, do all of these things to get an advantage over other people in a competitive field, put in the work and excel. And that's exactly what he did. And then yeah. you have Warren Buffett, who you you kind of met, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is a hilarious story in the book with you and your friends at the the annual uh, shareholders conference mm-hmm. that is held in, in uh, Omaha <laughs> every year. And, yeah. uh, and it, it's hilarious. I'm not, I don't want to give that part away but what I, what I do want to uh, talk about is the lessons that you learned from Warren Buffett were to me profound as well in the sense that he looks at the details of everything and he's very slow. He's actually somewhat of the opposite of, of He had Qi. a get, get rich slow scheme. Exactly. Very slow, but very methodical and would read the footnotes like, like crazy to really understand businesses. What else did you learn from that experience aside from, mm. from the details that Warren really paid attention to? Mm. One of the things that I could not have expected, you know, as you know, I spent eight months obsessively studying Warren Buffett, right? And I did it for a singular reason. I wanted to get an interview with him. And I thought the more I knew about him and the more in depth I would get, the more I would get this. I just assumed I would have this, I would find something in the, in the footnotes of his life to give me that in to get that interview. Um, you know, it would make my pitches better. It would make, you know, I just assumed like it would give me some kind of edge. 
What I couldn't have expected is that when you spend eight months only studying one person, and you know, I wish I could, I wish I had like pictures of this time because I would literally have like 15 Warren Buffett biographies stacked on my desk like a fort. And you know, if you open my phone, it was just like YouTube, every Warren Buffett video, and on Audible, every Warren Buffett audiobook. And you know, it was just like this, uh, you know, it's fueled by desperation, but you know, I was doing the work. And something I couldn't have expected is when you spend eight months studying one person, you accidentally, and I can only see this in hindsight, you sort of become brainwashed. Uh, you become indoctrinated. You know, if Joe, if you spend eight months only hanging out with one buddy, only one friend is the only friend you hung out with for eight months, you'd start acting like that guy, right? Um, one of the things I could not have expected that I got brainwashed by from Warren Buffett, uh, spending eight months just completely consuming all of his content and writings is you mentioned the big one, which is the, the slow, thoughtful approach to life. And the second one is the intrinsic value to both your career and to your quality of happiness that comes from integrity. You know, I, everyone knows the word integrity. You know, when you're a little kid, it's what they, you know, if they have a poster of it in kindergarten saying integrity, do the right thing. And you go to church and the pastor or the priest talks about integrity and, you know, you turn on the radio and someone's, you know, talking about be a good person. I never really thought of it. um, And it's always went over my head. But studying Buffett showed me integrity is actually And, you know, I might sound crazy saying this, one of the single most important traits to long-term success. And I think it's actually more important today than it even was when Buffett was coming up. And, you know, Joe, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. Turn on CNN tonight or open, you know, fortunemagazine.com or go to the Wall Street Journal. I guarantee you're going to see five articles on any given day now of someone who got, you know, of a high position who got fired because they did something out of integrity. And you weren't seeing that in the Wall Street Journal 50 years ago. And what I'll say is that, you know, Buffett showed me that integrity not only is the single most important, you know, let's say you're hardworking. Let's say you're talented. Let's say you've built an incredible 20-year career. One story of you screwing over a customer, one story of you cutting a corner with your product and it blowing up in someone's face, there goes 20 years of work. And there's a great quote from Warren Buffett that says, um, you know, your reputation takes 20 years to build and five minutes to ruin. If you understand that, you'll do things differently. The other one that I heard is, you know, trust is gained in drops and lost in buckets. You know, again, integrity obviously is good morals, good ethics, good for your conscience, good for your soul. But, you know, what Buffett showed me is that it's also just essential to a long-term successful career. It's sort of like the guardrails for ambition because, you know, it's ambition is, of course, a good thing, but ambition without integrity will lead to disaster. And if you don't have those guardrails set up of integrity, and if they're not fortified, 
it's a matter of time before your fears at some point in your life or your you know desires at some point in your life will guide you down the wrong path. So if you don't have those guardrails set up, um, you're in trouble. And that's something I learned from Buffett. When you were reaching out to all of these people that inspired you in one way or another, the other thing I noticed, but you didn't get into it a lot in the book, is the effectiveness of the person-to-person communication versus mm-hmm. yeah. email to, you know, random person emails you. And you could go to LinkedIn or you could just check your email. I get hundreds of those. And it's kind of unfair to the Alex's of the world that want to actually have a meaningful conversation. Right. So this is a two-part question. Is one, uh, explain that and what you found there. And then secondly, in a world where it's hard to communicate in person due to COVID, how does someone break through and, and do, do maybe not something similar because what you did is, is pretty extraordinary, but get to the person that they want to one way or another? Great question. So I'll, I'll break it down from first, let's talk about it in a non-COVID world, and then we can go into a COVID world. In a non-COVID world, and actually the place in the book that I sort of found a way to try to address it was actually in the Larry King chapter. And if you remember Larry King, and may his memory be a blessing, um, said that when he was starting out, he just went to radio stations. His dream was to be on the radio, and he just went to radio stations and knocked on doors and asked if they had any openings. And I said, okay, that's great if you're like in the 1950s, but if you were alive, you know, if you're not alive, if you were a kid today trying to start out, what would you do? And he said, I would do the same thing. And at first I thought, you know, this guy's sort of a little out of it. You know, there's LinkedIn now, there's emails, you know, you don't just knock on doors. And then he looked at me and he said, listen, something I need you to understand is that yes, technology has changed exponentially in the past 50 years. Human beings have not. Human beings have not. And what he was trying to say is, yes, emails are effective, but nothing's more effective than someone looking in your eyes and saying, all right, I get it. I can see you. I can feel you. I trust you. I get it. So if I had to just you know, put it in a ranking. Yes, the most effective way to make a connection with another human being, eye to eye, right? Number two, uh, and then, you know, go down the list. And essentially the way the list is ordered is based on the crowdedness, right? So, you know, seeing someone eye to eye at a dinner party of five people is a dream because you're sitting at dinner, it's eye to eye, you're sitting next to them on an airplane, eye to eye, That's just a dream come true, right? And then just think of the more and more crowded situation. So let's say, let's say they have, um, you know, a huge Instagram following. So their DMs are probably a horrible place because they have a huge Instagram following. So that's at the bottom of the list. But let's say they have a private Gmail account that only their family knows. And you find a way to find out that Gmail account you know, what the address is and you send them a note and it's a pretty empty email account that they check every day, that's a pretty good place to reach out to them. So it's all about the crowdedness, right? And it's about the the level of attention. Um, But this is sort of like inside baseball here. Let's say you're at a conference of 5,000 people. 
the eye to eye there is actually horrible because there's 5,000 people in the room. But if it's an hour before the conference starts and it's in the hallway next to the green room and they're completely alone and just sort of scrolling on their phone, that's a great place. So not every in-person is created equal. Um, Frankly, you just want a time where they feel calm and relaxed and have the space to see you. Okay, so now COVID world. COVID world, again, um, you know, the advice is true, but you just have to apply it to the realities of today. You know, what I had just said was you want to find them in a place where they can feel relaxed and comfortable and see you and hear you. In a COVID world, if you run up to someone on the street, they're probably not going to want to see you and hear you if you like, if it's a stranger running to them without a mask on. Um, they're probably going to, you know, try to run the other way. Right. Um, so again, you just sort of have to look at the situation and just ask yourself, where can I uh, go to them where it's the least crowded and the most relaxed situation? So, you know, when uh, people ask me about how to get a mentor, the number one advice I give to people is find a mentor who is not famous, right? If you want Bill Gates to be your mentor, I'm sorry, but there's millions of people sending him messages and trying to get to him. And he literally hires staff in order to clear those messages. Their job is just to, you know, respond and clear those messages. Whereas you can get incredible advice, life-changing help from, you know, the local businesswoman in your neighborhood uh, who's actually been through the trenches, knows where you're from, went to the same high school as you, and she runs, you know, the branch of your local bank. Um, you know, the the woman who might be the... Uh, floor manager of the Ford, you know, factory that you're at. You know, these, I think it's very easy, especially in this generation to just see on Instagram, all these, you know, quote unquote mentor influencers and just say, oh, those are the only people who have the key to me achieving my dream. And if there's like one thing I can share with people is it's, it's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. I, I definitely noticed that too. Um, and there's a great documentary on gaming, social media, and the buying of followers. And it just creates this like trickle down effect of being an influencer. And then you, you get things. And I'm not saying every, by no means every influencer falls in this camp, but there is a lot of. Uh, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> this guy takes like three regular people, they do auditions, and they said, hey, hey, we're going to make you famous. And they. Basically, at the time, they have like no following and, you know, they're just normal people yeah. and uh, buys followers. Uh, and this this uh, this one girl in, in, in the movie, she started to like actually thinking she was an influencer. Like, what are you like? What is, who are you influencing and why and what? You know, are you an influencer because you have Photoshop pictures of yourself and you make people want to look like that, even though it's not a realistic way of reality, you know, but there's some people who, you know, might fall into that category of quote unquote influencer who are actually helping people. Um, you know, there's therapy influencers now who share notes on mental health and self-awareness, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, it's a broad spectrum these days. So so I think I was telling you, I've, I started my 
career when I got into computers and digital marketing. And one of the things we did is optimize businesses for search engines, you know, SEO, I'm sure that's, that's the acronym for it. I wrote uh, a blog in like probably 2013 because it finally clicked on how a business should rank and, or how a person should rank or an organization. And the number one thing was to be a trust agent offline. Mm. And if you think about that, what happens? Well, if you're a trust agent offline, you're doing the right things offline, people will talk about you online. And when I think about influencers, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, find out, find people that have done really cool things, like you said, that local business person or, or an author who's writing a book or whatever it is. But look at it, look at for those people offline and you, you're probably going to have a much better chance because it's so crowded. You can't discern, can't discern fake from real, unfortunately, now in many cases. Yeah, and something, you know, I struggle with this a lot too because there's definitely an alert, uh, more followers, more, the, you know, there's, I, I, I feel it sometimes, uh, many times actually. And the thing that I used to sort of like stop myself from being sucked into the black hole is asking myself, what do I actually want? What do I actually want? And that question sort of shocks me back into reality of like, okay, okay, I don't, it's not the million followers I want. It's actually, I want to share, you know, I want to sell more copies of the third door. I want to share my mission with more people. I want to help, you know, the next generation believe in what's possible. I want to, you know, make money of course, and feel comfortable. Um, and I want to have fun and be happy and content. Okay. Are there other ways to do those five things? other than just posting selfies online. (laughs) Which is Um, the best segue into my next question for you. And this was an unbelievable part of the story. There's there's parts of your book that I wish were expanded. And one of them was about Waz, the co-founder of Apple. And he says, success isn't about just getting the highest position in a company. It's about whatever he can do in that company to make him the happiness. And for him, he wanted to be an engineer. And he lived his life like that. Like he wanted to experience things and just wake up and do his own thing and be to his own drum. And his his wife in the book attested to that. That's how he operates. Mm-hmm. And when you look at success, and I think you said it in the book versus him and Steve Jobs, you automatically think Steve Jobs, oh my God, he's so successful. But the reality is you have Waz who's, genuinely probably a happier human being. Oh, you want to know, uh, you asked if Chilu had read the book, someone who I know who's read the book. Uh, I got an email from Steve Wozniak about a week after the book came out. It's probably one of the nicest compliments I could have gotten. Uh, cause you know, I, I didn't write the book for these people to, you know, be quote unquote happy with me. I wrote it to, you know, help share this information with, you know, our generation. Um, However, it did feel great. I got an email from Steve Wozniak saying, and I'm trying to, you know, remember his words carefully. He said, in all of my life, no one has described me more accurately than this chapter. He said, you understand what so many people seem to miss. And that was the highest compliment. Um, you know, he wasn't complimenting the writing quality or the this or the that. He was actually writing, uh, he was complimenting the the essence that I saw in him. Um, so that was a big, 
very, very kind uh, note. And something I just learned from him is that you have to ask yourself what your definition of success is. And, you know, you brought up the whole Steve Jobs thing. And by the way, Steve Jobs has changed the world and has done incredible things. And, you know, I admire him a lot too. However, the reason most people will naturally put him on the quote-unquote success chart and not Wozniak is because American culture in particular does a very good job at indoctrinating, brainwashing us that success is equal to fame, money, and accomplishment. And... You know, no one's on the Forbes magazine cover because of how good their marriage is. You know, no one's on uh, the cover of Fortune magazine because how much their kids feel loved and supported. Uh, You know, no one is interviewed by Oprah Winfrey because of how much contentment and self-love they have. And, you know, media is a powerful thing, man. You know, I was born in 1992. I grew up in the 90s. So all I saw was this guy, Bill Gates' face on the cover of every magazine, you know, on any time they were discussing success, you know, even as a kid in school, your teachers, they're watching the same news. So, you know, to me, it was like Bill Gates, Britney Spears, you know, I'm from the 90s, Backstreet Boys, <laughs> that's what I saw. Um, And whether it's success or body image or Man, and I'm still struggling with this, which is almost detangling the almost inherited beliefs you get from society and from family of what makes a good person, you know, quote unquote, good person, right? And it's taken me my entire life until this point to realize, oh, there's been implicit messages I got from my grandpa as a little kid that I don't even realize affect the way I see things. Um, you know, the people I went out to interview for the third door, I'm sure if a kid in Cambodia wrote his or her version of this book, they wouldn't want to interview the same kind of people. For me, it's a very much American, (laughs) you know, kid who grew up in Los Angeles with immigrant parents. And, and by the way, I love that about myself. I love that that's where I came. And I actually love that I'm able to see see it for what it is right now and move, try to move uh, through it. Um, But yeah, I think about that a lot when it comes to defining success. One of the, uh, toward the end of the book, you talked, and and I couldn't believe I was reading it because it seemed like following your journey from where you were, like laying in your, your bed in your college dorm room, looking at the ceiling, saying, what am I going to do to going all over the world with Elliot? Now you find yourself with Lady Gaga <laughs> out of all people. And, and you had an idea for her to look at, the, hmm. at a YouTube video that Steve Jobs did in Apple, which gave her confidence that she didn't necessarily have at that moment in her life. And I was reading that thinking like, what the hell just happened? Like you went from doing all this stuff, just trying to get a hold of someone to talking to one of the most popular people and talking to her 
I don't want to say off a ledge, but she was like not in a good spot. Um, you know, her album, I think, wasn't selling. She was, people were doubting her. And you just gave her some great advice. Can you explain that moment? Because again, another part in that book where I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, what just happened there? By the way, awesome job, Alex. Thank you, man. It's it's funny. I, I haven't thought of that in a long time. And just hearing that helped me remember. Yeah, that was, it was a pretty wild experience. And again, she's not my best friend. We're not on texting basis, you know. Um, but those four days in Texas were a pretty magical time. And I would say one of the biggest things I learned from that experience is you can't control when things are going to come together and click. And I would say, you know, anybody listening who, you know, again, whether you have a dealership, whether you're starting out your own business, whether you're, you know, climbing the ranks of a company, this is the same lesson that Chi Lu tried to teach me, but it took me my entire journey to finally realize that the only thing you have control over are your own actions. You have control over how much work you put in, how prepared you are, what your mindset is. And how many times you get up when you get knocked down. And it might sound like a cliche, but that's the truth. It's the only thing you have control over. You have control over when you're afraid, whether you're going to be paralyzed or whether you're going to be courageous. You have control over when someone tells you to screw off, whether you yell at them back or you just nod your head and walk the other way and find someone else to work with. But everything else... When you get a message that Lady Gaga is crying and needs some help, whether you, when you get a message that, uh, you know, when you wake up and find out Tony Shea's in the room, oh, those things you can't control. And again, I'll, I'll quote Chi Lu here where he says, luck is monumental to success, but most people don't understand it. Luck isn't this rolling of the dice, you know, magical eureka moment. Luck is actually like a bus. If you're standing at the bus stop, you know, every now and then the bus rolls by. But if you're not, if you don't have the bus fare in the form of preparation, no matter how many times the bus rolls up, you won't be able to get on. I love that uh, that lesson from Chi Lu when I when I read about the bus because that's so that's so true. We had briefly talked in the beginning about Quincy Jones, and I want to circle back to it because what you just touched on is the quote that was kind of derived. I don't know if he said it exactly or you you created the quote from the conversation, but it was essentially the opposite of success mm. isn't failure. The opposite of success is not trying. I remember where, yes, that was a quote that came from me, that came to me upon reflecting on the conversation. Um, and that's one of the cool things about the journey is that there were the moments and the, you know, lessons that came in the moment from the person's mouth. And then sometimes because I was young and it, took me some time to actually understand what they were trying to tell me it might be two months later that i'm like oh that's it you know i'm sure you've had those moments where oh, yeah. someone says something to you and you're just like you're sort of like mentally chewing on it and chewing on it and then you're like 
You know, you might be in the gym and you go, oh my God, that's it. And, you know, that interview with Quincy Jones changed my life. And one of the things he showed me was, and it's something I still struggle with, is beating myself up when things don't go right. And again, it's taken me many years of reflection to understand why that happens. You know, I was born, um, and I'm curious if, you, you know, you had the same experience in childhood. I was born with love almost being like a point system, where if you get an A on a test, you get a point. If you don't clean your room, you lose a point. If your parents or grandparents say good morning and you smile and say good morning, you get a point. If you're in a shitty mood and they say good morning and you don't smile, you lose a point. Um, you know, no one explains this to you, but when you're a kid and kids are smart, they understand the system. They understand the system. And and again, I don't think they did this on purpose. I think this is just, um, you know, things are just passed down generation to generation. I'm smiling and, because with my kids, we have point systems. It's not quite like that, but, but definitely. Right. But I'm sure it's not over yeah. love. I'm sure it's over, you know, responsibilities yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah, it's funny. But the question is, is the love conditional? Is your parents' uh, attention they give you conditional to an accomplishment, right? And when you go out to start something new, any kind of entrepreneurial venture, whether it's a new business, a new romantic relationship, you know, anything new is pretty entrepreneurial. You know, you're going into new territory. It is inherent to the journey that you will get punched in the face by rejection more times than you can possibly imagine. If you're really starting out on something really big and really new, it's just, you know, it's a fact of life. If you jump in water, you're going to get wet. And if you're starting out something new that you've never done before, you will trip and make mistakes every baby who learns to walk falls there's no human child that comes out of the womb walking perfectly and there's no entrepreneur who comes out of the womb of business knowing exactly how to run a business now the thing i struggled with which joe you know you read about in the book is every mistake i made on my journey was covered in shame and pain um, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, not only society, but again, like I said, in my family of how, you know, how I was raised, that mistakes are things to cover up. Mistakes are things that show the world that you don't know what you're doing. And God forbid they find out that you're not perfect. And by the time I got to that interview with Quincy Jones, I was so beat up internally from all my mistakes. You know, the mistake with Zuckerberg, the mistake with Warren Buffett, that, you know, there was just, sometimes it felt like my whole journey was this long, you know, parade of mistakes I had made. It wasn't until I met Quincy Jones that he sort of just released me from that prison and helped me see that your mistakes, in some ways, are your greatest gift. But it's only... If you cherish them, then it's only if you treat them as your best friends can you learn from them. And only then can you grow. That's beautiful. All right, I have a, a couple more questions for you. I had uh, Cal on the podcast mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. He was, uh, he was amazing. But 
after meeting with him, I realized I really need to start asking better questions. Hmm. And then I thought about your journey asking questions and, and how you created your questions. Do you have any wishes to go back and ask different questions to the, hmm. the people you interviewed then? Huh. You know what? And this is something Cal would say to me. You know, Cal is a very dear friend of mine who mentored me as a writer and as an interviewer. And one of the things that he would say to me while I was writing the book that would sort of drive me crazy the way like a dad sort of drives his son crazy, you know, sometimes our relationship sometimes gets like that a little. And Cal would say, you know, Alex... book is beautiful because only someone your age would write something like that. (laughs) I I was like, wait, you know, you can't, you know, Cal is so nice and he, the way his voice is so gentle. So you're like, was that an insult? (laughs) But it wasn't, it was, uh, it was, it was a truth. It was a truth that I just wasn't comfortable with at the time, which he's right. The reason the third door is unlike other books on success. The reason it's so different from, you know, Napoleon Hill, the reason it's so different from a Tim Ferriss book, the reason it's so different from any of these other, you know, Malcolm Gladwell books, um, well, it definitely has not sold as much as those others. That's probably the biggest reason. But, uh, you know, the, you know the, the biggest difference, I think what Cal was trying to say, the beautiful difference, is this is a story of an 18-year-old who doesn't know what he's doing, who's struggling with pains he's not even aware of, who's haunted by fears that he can't even name, and who wants to learn to help himself and his friends at this time in their life. And the questions I asked were a reflection of where I was at the time. You know, the first question I asked Bill Gates was, Tell me about that business you started when you were in high school. You know, when Bill Gates is being interviewed by Anderson Cooper, uh, that's not the first question he gets. You know, my first que- my question to Maya Angelou um, was about what do you do when you're feeling like there's a cloud over your head at all times? Because at that moment in my life, that's how it felt. Um, you know, when I was sitting with Jessica Alba, I asked her about how to deal with a parent who's going through cancer, because that's what I was going through. And I think what made this journey so real was that I asked the questions that I felt, as you said, not, uh, and you brought this up beautifully in the beginning of the interview, not from the head, but from the heart. And if I were to sit down with all these people again starting today, and to do it again as a, almost like a part two and go back and interview all of them all over again, I would ask questions about things I'm curious about now. And one of the things I've learned from Cal Fussman is the best interview comes when your curiosity is in the driver's seat. So the other thing I learned about Cal, he interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev and mm-hmm. I'm sure you know the story that he was supposed to have an hour and he ended up having 10 minutes he asked him a question that I want to ask you, especially because you brought up your, your dad. And But I wanted to ask you, what's the best lesson your dad ever taught you? 
courtesy of Cal Fussman through Cal <laughs> to me, to you. Hmm. There's a lot of lessons I learned from my dad both directly from him and also implicitly just, you know, when you're a kid and even as an adult, you learn things from your parents just by seeing them, seeing how they operate in the world or in very much, um, when my dad passed away, I remember that the, the week after he passed, I wrote in my journal that it feels like, uh, a lighthouse went out. And when my dad was alive, I never thought of him as a lighthouse, uh, Sometimes you only notice things when they're gone. And, you know, a parent, no matter what your relationship with them is, whether it's a loving relationship, whether you don't talk to your parent, whatever that relationship is, it's almost, it's, it can feel like a reference point. You know, if you have a close relationship with a parent, you say, oh, I'm like dad this way. Or if you have a tumultuous relationship, you say, oh, I'm not like dad. Either way, it's actually still a reference point. You're still measuring yourself somewhere along that way. Um, and again, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't have seen that until it was gone, but if I have to think about a single lesson, um, one comes out to me the most, it's so vivid. I was about eight years old and I was just, it was, you know, my family has one thing that unites us all. Me, my sisters, my mom, we are just the best procrastinators you'll ever meet. <laughs> we are, oh my God, you'll, you know, no one works harder than a benign sibling an hour before deadline. We are, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, my sister married a man, he's amazing, his name is Mike, and he's one of those guys who like three weeks before the deadline takes his manila folders, has his outline, you know from a different planet than us we are three weeks before just you know on tiktok watching netflix <laughs> that's hilarious uh, and you know sure enough i'm eight years old and it's uh i think it was like maybe a science fair in school and for you know a month the teacher said on tuesday everyone bring a poster to school you know remember those poster boards they would sell at the you know drugstores at the pharmacy yep. um you know, I remember it was like 86 cents, you know, at the local, you know, Rite Aid thrifties. And of course, you know, we're going to school that morning and we get into the car and I go, dad, we have to stop at Rite Aid on the way. Uh, I have a poster board that I have to get that, you know, that was due today. And he's like, you know, why did you say this a month ago? I'm like, I didn't remember, you know? So of course my dad drives me, you know, rushes to the pharmacy on the way to school and the reason I remember this actually, we were because we were in we were so late and in such a rush. You know, my dad wanted to save time, and he said, "He, you know, here's you know, here's five bucks. Just run inside. You know where to get it. Pay and come back." And I remember, you know, I'm eight years old. I'm like, this is the first time I'm going into a store with money. This is amazing. You know, I I, I don't know why. I remember the first time I've been on an airplane alone. I remember the first time I went into a store alone with money. Uh, you know, I was eight years old. I wasn't that old. So I go into the store, Joe, and I walk in, you know, I'm feeling good, man. I have this money in my hand. I can, in theory, buy anything I want, but I'm like, all right, focus on the mission. And I go in, I go straight to the, you know, I've been in that store a hundred times. I go straight to the poster board, 
school supply section. I get that white poster board. I go, you know, I'm, I go to the cashier and I can barely see over the counter. I'm so young. Right. And, you know, she rings it up. I give her the $5 bill and she like gives me back the change, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, like four bucks, something like that. And for some reason she gave me like a $1 bill, a $1 bill and a $10 bill. She had mixed up the, you know, the bills and she hands it to me and I look, you know, I'm eight years old. I can count. And I'm like, I'm rich. <laughs> like this is huge. And like, um, you know, my dad, uh, had a, a used car lot. Uh, he had his own dealership. My family's, uh, my dad and my uncles, and my grandpa had a car dealership my whole childhood. Um, but they struggled, you know, immigrant family, they struggled for money. My, you know, the, the lack of money, the pressure of money was, uh, a very big constant in my childhood. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at all this money. I've never held more money in my life. You know, I'm eight years old and I'm like, Dad is going to love this. You know, I'm thinking I just won the lottery. I got the poster board and I made money. I've never made money before. This is huge. So, you know, I run out of that store before like anyone can know what happened, you know? And I run back to my dad. I get into the car. I get the poster board. And right before, you know, we drive away, I, you know, I blurt out the big good news. And I'm waiting for him to like high five me. And he looks at me and he goes, You know, the way stores work is at the end of the day, a manager goes and checks the cash register. And if the receipts don't total up the amount, the person might lose their job. And he looked at me and said, why don't you go back in there and ask for the right change? And I remember going back in there feeling so sad, not because I thought I did something wrong. I was sad that my dad wasn't proud of me. I thought I was doing a good thing, making money. Um, and I remembered that my whole life, but it wasn't until, of course, I was a bit older as a teenager that I could, and my dad never told me a lesson, like, son, this is the lesson. But that story always stuck with me because what he was trying to teach me is yes, making money is great. But if you're doing it at someone else's expense, if you have to, if your success means someone else losing their job, if you're making money means someone else is suffering, that's not success. That's a great lesson, Alex. Okay, I have a quick little lightning round for you, and then we'll wrap Let's up. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so you, you only have a few seconds to answer these questions. I won't time right. you, but quick answers. Favorite Spielberg movie? Mm, ooh, E.T. Book you'd recommend from any of the people that you met, that you either read then or read since, that, that they were the author of? Ooh, I'll do The Snowball, which is Warren Buffett's official biography. I love that one. Who would you extend time with if you had to pick one person from your journey? Ooh, like a week-long week vacation? At any extension of time. 
the most fun one would probably be Quincy Jones, but the one I would be the most curious about is Bill Gates because I just still think he's just the most fascinating so, mind out there. So you don't want to finally have that meeting with Zuckerberg? <laughs> no, no, no. I'll choose Gates. Yeah. Even though it would probably yeah. be less partying and more, you know, yeah. reading and intellectual conversations, you know, that would be a special one. Next one is what what would you like the audience to know about you that isn't in the book? And obviously you just mm. came out and said you're a procrastinator and that wasn't necessarily <laughs> in there. So we know that. Uh, is there anything else? I ran my first marathon last year, which was awesome. Good job. But because of COVID, of course, you know, marathons were canceled. Um, but I decided to continue training and I actually, I've never talked about this publicly. I ended up running a marathon by myself just on the sidewalk, 26 miles. I woke up four o'clock in the morning and I did it and it was just, was it planned or did you just woke up and were like, no, I, I, I'd been, I'd been planning it. And it, okay. it was the day that the marathon was supposed to be. I was going to go fly to this, you know, marathon. It was this like beautiful trail run. It was, you know, going to be in Virginia. It was like this really cool marathon I discovered online. Um, but I ended up just doing the marathon, you know, outside my home, um, you know, woke up 4am, 6am, just started running and didn't stop until I hit 26.2 miles. You should do the Spartan ultra with us in, uh, in Tahoe this year. I, of course, you know, Cal does a lot of Spartan races. Yeah, yeah, that's why him, him and I were talking about it. It'll be our first one. I have uh, about seven or eight people that are going to be yeah. in, uh, in Tahoe doing that's it. That's Joe Dispenza's thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, it's like 30 miles up a mountain, <laughs> 60 obstacles. It's going to be pretty intense. <laughs> I'll, I have a I'll long FaceTime you for. from up there, man. I'll okay. you know, show me the view. All right. Uh, last, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, you know, however people like. So, you know, on social media, it's really easy. It's just at Alex Benayan. Um, and if anyone, you know, listen to this and resonate with it, let me know. Um, you know, however you like, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, uh, would love to hear what you all thought. And Joe, I just want to thank you, man, because your questions were incredibly thoughtful and it brought up emotions and memories that I haven't, uh, reflected on in a long time. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. And again, this is the book. I read a lot. It, this one had me captivated like like you. I don't normally sit down in one or two settings and read read a whole book. It usually takes a little bit. And there's so many takeaways from, from here that you can apply in the things that we talked about today. But my uh, my tip is just do it. You know, Nike says that for a reason. Just do it. Start creating your own luck. And uh, the opposite of success isn't failure. The opposite of success is not trying. So Amen to that. Leave it at that, my friends. It was great to get to know you. I feel like I could talk to you for, for two hours. <laughs> let's um, do plus, it, man. But uh, yeah, let's, let's catch up again. Um, and good luck with everything, Alex. And we'll talk Thank soon. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast. Huge shout out to Alex Benayan. Highly recommend you pick up his book. There is a Kindle version, an Audible version, which he narrates himself. Super engaging. It's awesome. As for this episode, I have four pages of notes here. But two takeaways that really hit me hard. One is the fact of life is you will stumble. Every baby that's learning to walk ends up falling. But they're learning to walk. 
this plays into that Quincy Jones quote that the opposite of success is not trying. And that just resonates with me. When you're doing a, when you create or start a podcast or you start anything, you can take two options. You can sit there and you could talk about it that you want to do it, or you can do it. And when you do it, you learn so much. Like every week right now, I'm learning how to ask better questions. I'm learning how to edit. I'm learning a workflow. I'm learning how to publish. I'm learning how to have deeper conversations with people. I wouldn't have learned any of that stuff had I not tried. So it's a success already in the sense that I'm learning. I highly encourage you to try something. Try something new. You're going to learn from it. Two, luck is monumental to success. If you're standing at the bus stop and you don't have the bus fare in terms of preparation, the bus will just roll by. The bus will roll by and you have to be ready. So be ready in your life. Be ready for those moments to take advantage of. And you can do that by preparing yourself, by reading, by listening, by exercising, by doing all of these things. No matter what it is that you're going after, be ready because that opportunity will come. I want to thank you a ton for tuning into this episode. I know it was a bit long. The third door is a concept that's near and dear to my heart. Because a lot of what I achieved in my life was because of third doors, figuring my way around things. Alex alluded to one of the uh, events in my life that I was able to apply for a job as someone else because I couldn't apply for it as myself. And I'll get into that in a later episode. But that created a chain reaction of me being able to get an interview for a job, getting the job, and changing my whole entire career that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So it was great to have Alex on and explore this concept. I'm looking forward to the next episode, looking forward to your feedback between now and then. If you can subscribe, if you can comment on this episode, leave a review, it would mean a ton to me. I'll see you next week and thank you again.